I want to welcome those that are joining us uh, online as well as the Edgewood campus. Uh, we're glad to have you this morning. And today we're continuing our series called Remember. Um, when I think about this series, I think about um, old stories. Uh, one of the cool things about life is being able to share experiences together. And I don't know about you, I love just like sitting down with people and just having a cup of coffee and just hearing stories like war stories and um, stories about people's childhood and about how they grew up and about what they did have and didn't have. And I know that some of my favorite memories are hearing my parents, their siblings tell stories about their growing up days. I don't know about you, but I did things that I hope my, my siblings don't share with y'all, right? Um, it's not because they haven't forgotten, because they don't, but I know that one day my kids are going to hear all the stories that my siblings have on them. And my only hope is that I have more stories on my siblings than they have on me. You understand? <laughs> But stories are just an opportunity for us to reflect and remember and share uh, kind of a communal experience where we double over in laughter to the point of tears, where we reflect on uh, how oftentimes we made it through things that we didn't think we would. And when I think about remember, I can't help but reflect on the people of Israel. Matter of fact, I'm reading through Exodus right now, along with a lot of people in our church, as we continue to read through. And I read through Exodus 12, kind of last week, part of, first very part of this week, and then I moved over to Exodus chapter 13. And as I was reading in Exodus chapter 13, I was so moved by this story then I changed my entire message in the middle of this week as kind of where I was going. And, and I wanted to share the story with you. And I want to see um, how it not only impacted me, but I pray that it impacts you. So I'm reading in Exodus um, chapter 12. And in Exodus chapter 12, it's the story about Passover. And Passover is a word that we've heard before. And I'm sure some of you have um, a better idea of Passover than I do. But I would say the vast majority of us in this room are like, oh, I've heard of it, but what does it really mean? Well, we think about Passover and in terms of the experience that Christ had, a, a meal with his disciples before his death. But really, Passover goes all the way back to the days of Moses, back to the days when there was a country called Israel who was just becoming formed as a nation. Matter of fact, when you go back and you look uh, at this group of people, what you know is there was a group of people that would eventually became, become called Israel that started out with about 70 people who seek refuge from a famine in their land. 70 people go in and they find hope in Egypt and they get food and, and they get water and they get all that they need in the midst of a really large drought in their land. These 70 people, though, would then become enslaved to the hands of the Egyptians and the known leader of that world in that time named Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, which was the title of the man, would enslave these people for hundreds and hundreds of years. Eventually, God would raise up a man named Moses and he would say, hey, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to go to the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, and I want you to tell them to let my people go. And Moses goes and, and, and Pharaoh goes, hey, listen, you tell your God, I don't even know who he is, but I'm not letting the people go. And then Moses goes, okay, you're gonna reg regret this. And then uh, he goes, I, I, whether I do or not, that's up to you. And then eventually Moses would go back to him time after time after time after time. And every time he would go to him, he'd say, hey, you need to let our people go so that we may go serve the Lord. And Pharaoh time after time would say no. But eventually on the 10th plague, God would take Pharaoh and all the people of Egypt's firstborn son. 
And what's crazy about that is that God gave a provision for the people of Israel. And here's what he said. He goes, uh, before I bring about the angel of death to go through the land, to pass through the land, he goes, I want the angel of death to pass over my people, Israel. So he goes, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a Passover lamb. And he goes, you're going to take the lamb and you're going to... you're." You're going to sacrifice it in sorts, but he goes, you're going to take part of it. You're going to roast it and eat it and use it for your family. And then he goes, you're going to take the blood of that lamb. And he goes, and I want you to put it over the lentils of your home. Basically, he goes, I want you to put it over your door so the angel of death would pass over your family and that the plague would only be enforced on the families of Egypt that do not do as the Lord says. And so on this uh, particular part, we pick up, and it's in Exodus chapter 12, the very last kind of portion of it. After the Passover comes, the angel of death hits the land of Egypt. People are in ruins, in tears. Pharaoh's heart, though it was hardened, now relents. In verse 33, it says, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. In essence, they look around and they see that their firstborn children are dead and, and they go, hey, listen, you need to get out of the land. Like you, you need to go with haste, like get out of here because I know that if, if your God will take the firstborn, we're all likely to be taken. And so they, they encourage them to leave as fast as they can. And so the people, Israel, took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And they leave. Now, real quick, a real known fact is that God was ahead of the people of Israel. And even as they were preparing to leave, one convenient thing that we should note as we kind of move on is that before they had the Passover lamb, uh, God instructed Moses to tell the people of Israel to go to their Egyptian neighbors and ask for a handful of things. And they didn't go and ask for, hey, can I have some cinnamon um, and some sugar? Here's what they said. Um, hey, if you don't mind, uh, we're going to be going on a journey soon. And if you would give us like some silver and gold um, and some things that will help us along the way. And all the Egyptian neighbors did as they were moved to do. And so when they go with haste, you need to realize that they are leaving the land that they have been enslaved in and they're going to go with um, men and women and children and they're going to go with gold and silver. Look at Exodus 12, 37 and 38. It says, And the people of Israel then journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Here's what that means. A lot of people, a lot of animals, and a lot of Egyptians left. Why? Because the Egyptians had seen Pharaoh, and all along they're like, hey, Pharaoh, like, why do you not give in? Why do we have to continue to experience all of this hardship? Like, we've had, we've had boils, uh, we've had rivers turned to blood, we've had gnats, we've had frogs, um, we've had our firstborn taken. Like, some of them are going, I'm not following you or any of our gods anymore. I'm going to go with them. And them, we know, is 600,000 men plus women and children. I think a very conservative number is 2 million people. So 2 million people come out of the land plus very much livestock. How much livestock? Very much. More than you and I are going to count. More than God wanted Moses and all the elders of the land to count. It was very much. 
It was in abundance. They have silver, they have gold, they have livestock, they have their families, and then they have a bunch of Egyptians who are tagging along and they are heading out. Now, crazy thing is, is look at this in verse 41. They are heading out at the end of 430 years on that very day. All the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. On the very day that they went in 430 years earlier to the very day. Everybody say it with me, very day. Very day. Now that's amazing. 430 years to the very day they are heading out. They go in 70 strong. They have an incubator heated up for them for 430 years where they just multiply and hatch like crazy. They go out 2 million strong with lots of animals, lots of children, and lots of Egyptians. And the great I am has spoken. And in verse 50, um, after the Lord declares to them, even as they go out, he goes, here's who can have of the Passover. Here's who can partake of it in the future and future generations. Basically, he's, he's trying to help Israel set up some guidelines because they've got a bunch of Egyptians that they're, they're gonna need to um, meet the requirements and some of the households of Moses if in future years. He gives all that appointment. And verse 50, he says, and all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. A fantastic story. A story about God's redemption for the people of Israel. The story about him making a nation out of 70-ish people and then bringing them two million strong. And as they come out of this experience, they are officially a nation. A nation set apart for God. A nation declaring the handiwork of God. A, a nation that would delight in God, be protected by God, have his promises, his provision, his protection. All of which I'll show you in just a few moments. But God then says in Exodus chapter 13, here's what I require of you. And look at verse one and two. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. So he goes, listen, you are going to be free. Uh, and, and when you are free, he goes, this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna consecrate to me your firstborn. And when he says firstborn, what he's talking about are lambs and goats. He's talking about um, anything that they would possess. And he goes, and you are to set apart. You are to, to give this to the Lord. In, in many ways, uh, it's a, a sacrificial and a symbol to God that my heart is devoted to you. Which then asks the question, well, do you mean that God doesn't care about all of the herd? And the answer is no, he cares about the whole thing. He, cares, he wants all of your herd, but you're gonna give him a symbol, you're gonna give him a sacrifice of the firstborn. Let's move forward and, and in some ways, let's think about it this way. Um, God created a week, a week span in which he created everything we see and know in six days and then he rests on the seventh and he tells the Jewish people, hey, there's a week, seven days, but there's one to be reserved. It's going to be a first fruit to the Lord in essence. It's gonna be the Sabbath. It's gonna be a rest, a day in which you trust God for his provision. So you're gonna consecrate the firstborn and you're gonna consecrate, consecrate a day in the week. And he goes, and hey, think about firstborn, even your child. He goes, listen, I don't want you to sacrifice your child because it's not, it's not gonna be like a lamb and goat. It's not gonna be pure and innocent. So he goes, you're gonna redeem your firstborn. You're gonna pay. Same with a donkey. It's not a clean animal, so you're gonna redeem it. So he, he put methods of how you would consecrate your firstborn just like you and I would have methods um, if we were people of Israel around the first fruit of a Sabbath. And he goes further than that. I mean, think about even how he would consecrate and set apart 
um, their financial system. Uh, did God want all of Israel's finances? Yes. Even though he owned the cattle on a thousand hills, God says, listen, still all of it's mine. But then what did God require of them? A first fruit of sorts. He goes, Here, here's what I want. I want a tithe, which is a tenth. And the question is a tenth of what? A tenth of what I give you. And they didn't have a ton of money, but what they did have was lots of crops, an abundance of crops. And so God says, I'm gonna set up feast and I'm gonna give you feast. And during these feasts, you are to give me the first fruits. That's all that God wants. He wants to set apart something for God. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, he goes three times a year, your males are going to go up to Jerusalem and they're going to go on appointed festivals. You're going to have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And you shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed, is what he told Israel. He's going to tell them, like, when you, when you come to me, I want something set apart. It's for me. Friends, do you all understand that? That's what he's telling Israel. He goes, I brought you out of, of bondage and slavery and oppression of 430 years to the day. Now set apart yourself. Set apart your children. Set apart your flocks. Set apart your day of the week for me to rest. And, and hey, set apart your, your finances. Now here's the crazy thing is, the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts on the 14th day of this month and goes to the 21st. Three days after that, you have another feast of first fruits in which the people of Israel, three days after they would take the Passover meal together and they would inaugurate this feast, they're to go up to Jerusalem and they take a tenth of their barley and they give it to the Lord. 50 days after that, you have the Feast of Weeks. We'd call it Pentecost. And they would go up and they would take a, a celebration of what God had and they would take their wheat harvest and they would take it to the Lord. What an incredible picture. Time and time and time again, these people are coming and they're consecrating themselves for the Lord. They're giving him a portion of what they have. In the fall, they have another feast that's really important called the Feast of Booths. It comes five days after the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. That is a feast in which all the males of Israel go up and they go to Jerusalem and they offer a, what? A tithe. They bring their olives and their, their grapes. Do you see what God's doing here? God is, in, in essence, he's helping uh, the people of Israel see that as I set you apart, I'm not trying to be a killjoy. I'm not trying to rip you off. I'm trying to give you all that your hearts would desire. And if your, your hearts are gonna desire the things of God, then you need to, to realize that I own it all and I don't require these things because uh, I'm trying to make rules and, and habits and habitual things in your life that are gonna destroy you. He goes, I'm trying to free you. The challenge is, is that often when we think about freedom, we think that God does something in order to just set us free to, to do whatever our hearts desire. The problem is, is that our heart's desire oftentimes and most likely never lines up with God's heart's desire. And so when he frees the people of Israel, the question you got to ask yourself, was he freeing them just to do their own thing? Like, hey, they're free just to, to just take off any path they want, all two million of them with their little, their little families and, and their Egyptian neighbors that come out. They can just go whatever path they want. And God goes, no, I bought you. I am the one who purchased you. I am requiring much of you. And he says, and so you should set yourself apart. But let me ask you this question. If God's gonna free a people and he's gonna ask them to do something, would he ask them to do something he's not willing to do? I mean, let's think about Colossians chapter one. Look, look, what, look what Paul says about this guy named Jesus, God's son. 
Colossians 1, it says, he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And then look what it says. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all was created, what? Through him and for him. But did you see what it said? That he was the firstborn of creation. Now listen, our Muslim friends, our Mormon friends, our Jehovah Witness friends, they'll take that verse and they'll say, oh, he was the first created. He's not really God. He was just created uh, as a part of a lesser God per se, maybe a prophet or, or maybe he's God-like, but he's not God. And that's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul is saying, no, he's the one who spoke the world into existence. He's the one who, who spoke everything we see and know into existence. But more than that, he is preeminent. He is the firstborn. Now let's dial it back. How important was the firstborn to God? Set apart, consecrated, different. Do you know what God gave us? A consecrated, set apart, holy, righteous, blameless, pure first fruit. One that would meet every, every sacrifice required by God to be pleasing in his sight. Jesus, his son, the creator of all we see and know, met in full. Amen, hallelujah, Easter's right around the corner. We get to rejoice because he is the first fruit. He is everything we desire. But God doesn't stop there with the people. He doesn't just say, hey, just consecrate your stuff to me. He goes, look at this. He says to Moses in verse three, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. By what? A strong hand. Hey, Moses, I brought you out because of your incredible wisdom. Hey, Moses, I brought you out because of Aaron's incredible intellect. Hey, I brought you out because of your people's obedience. No, I brought you out because my hand is strong. Verse four and five goes, today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and every other ites there are, he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with the milk and honey, and you shall keep this service in this month. He goes, you need to know what the Lord has done. He has fulfilled his promise. He told Abraham long ago in Genesis chapter 12, that it would come to fruition. Hey, you need to know it is, and that's why you have feast. That's why you consecrate yourself is because the Lord has done what he said he would do with his righteous right hand, the strong arm of God. And so here's what you need to realize as you continue in that chapter, Moses um, it's just, this is reiterated to him as he speaks to the people because God told him. And so in verse three, he says, it's by the strong hand the Lord brought you from this place. In verse nine, he goes, that's why you're gonna keep my statutes and decrees. That's why you're gonna do what I command you to do. Why? Because the, the, the strong hand of the Lord brought you out of Egypt. And he goes, well, what about my sons? When they ask, or our firstborn, when they ask you about why we're doing all this and, and why, why we're consecrating our firstborn and all that, he goes, you just need to tell them we do that because God by his strong arm brought us out of the land of Egypt. Okay, well, what else are we to do? And he goes, well, here's what you need to do. You need to write the, the word of God on the tablet. Put it on the front of your eyes. He goes, write it on the tablet of your heart. Like, don't forget these things. 
Why? Because God, by his strong arm, brought you out of Egypt. Four times in verse 3, 9, 14, and 16, he goes, by a strong arm, the Lord brought you out. Ten times in this passage, in, verse, in chapter 13, ten different times, if you include these four, you see it was by God that they come out of the land of Egypt. Who brings about freedom? God does. Verse 17 to 18 of Exodus 13, look what it says. And when Pharaoh let the people God, uh, go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Here's what he says. He goes, when I lead you out with my strong arm, he goes, I lead you in a path that makes sense. But that, that didn't make sense to the people. Matter of fact, the, the easy way would have been the, the, the Via Maris. The Via Maris would have come up the coastal line, up the Mediterranean Sea. It would have been the easy path. Everybody travels it. They would have known about it. The only challenge is with that path, they would have had Egyptian military outposts along the way. And God goes, we're not gonna go that way because you aren't prepared for, for battle. Like you are just beginning to learn how to trust me. So we're gonna go my way. And he says, that's the way of the Red Sea. Now, here's what's really cool about it is he, he then says, and, and by the way, as you go, don't forget to go get old Joseph. Now, Joseph was the guy who was one of the brothers that helped them, this, the group of 70 find refuge. And Joseph, before he died, said, hey, listen, God's gonna fulfill his promises. And when he does, hey, will you take me with you? And so here's what he does. He goes, hey, listen, don't bury me in Egyptian soil because you're gonna have to dig me up and that's gonna be laborious and, and you don't wanna do that. So just, just put me in a box. And when you, when, when you know the Lord takes you, you just you take me with you because I don't wanna be buried here because I, I wanna be buried, buried in, in the future home, the promise, what God's telling. Just as he told Abraham and Isaac and, and, and just as J, you know, Jacob was told and, and as a son of him, I, I, just, I wanna go there. So here's what happens. 40, 430 years of the day, they consecrate themselves. They're, they're ready for action. They get old Joseph in the box and they haul out with all their women, donkeys, children, animals, and old Joseph. And there they go. In verse 21 and 22, it says, and when the Lord went before them, he did it with a, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. Incredible. Here's what God does. He goes, listen, I'm not just gonna bring about freedom and then leave you to your own devices. Because he goes, that's not freedom. Freedom is when you realize that there's a transfer of ownership. See, here, here's what they were bound to. They were bound to an Egyptian ruler named Pharaoh who was oppressive, self-centered, egotistical, arrogant, and wanted his own way. And when God said, go and let my people go, Moses does so. And when he finally relents because of the strong arm of the Lord, God is just saying, listen, no longer are you yoking yourself to an Egyptian ruler. You're yoking yourself to the ruler of Israel and to the ruler of the known world, the creator of heaven and earth, his name is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. He is a God that is indescribable, inconceivable, but yet worthy of your worship. And he is the one that will be followed. But what happens is, is they transfer ownership. Instead of following Pharaoh, they follow the God of the Bible. They're not free to their own devices. Do you understand? 
They're led by a cloud by day and fire by night. And God says, I'm not going to leave you alone. And, and here's what I want you to lean in with me. God gives them promise and he gives them provision and he gives them protection. When you think about God's promise, God promises. He goes, listen, I'm going to lead you out of oppression and slavery. Check. He does it. He goes, I'm going to guide you and I'm going to make you into a great nation. When they come out of Egypt, they are officially a nation. God says, I'm going to make you great. Check. He does that. He goes, I'm going to... I'm going to lead you to a, a land flowing of milk and honey. It's going to be luxurious and luscious, and it's going to meet all of your needs. Check, God will do that. And he goes, and, and get this, he goes, I'm going to give you not just those promises, but I'm going to give you a provision. He goes, I'm not going to leave you alone just to, to write the, a handful of, of feasts on your heart. He goes, I'm going to give you law. I'm going to give you instructions on how you would worship me and how you work and move in the tabernacle or the temple. I'm going to give you ways that you would treat one another. He goes, I'm going to, I'm going to give all of those precepts and commands. If you'll, if you'll follow them, you'll be blessed. Check. He does it. It's his provision for them. He goes, hey, and listen, when you struggle with law and precepts, hey, know that there's going to be a way to me. I'm going to give you priests. I'm going to give you kings. I'm going to give you leaders. I'm gonna help you find a way. I'm gonna give you sacrifices that will, will honor me. I'm gonna make you a set apart people. Do y'all see that? He goes, I'm gonna make you right. And then he goes, and I'm gonna give you protection. I'm gonna give you a strong army. And when your army is weak and feeble, if they'll look to me, he goes, I'll mow down your adversaries. I will be the righteous right hand. I will be the one who does immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine with far less than it's required. I'll be the one who, when you walk around Jericho as instructed, that I'll bring walls down. I'll be the one who takes down a Philistine with a small young boy. I'll be the one who brings about a savior for the people of comely appearance. I'll be it. I'll be your protection. Do you see that? I'll be the one who gives you my presence, the Shekinah glory to rest in a tabernacle and later a temple. I'll be the one who inhabits the people. You ever wonder like why in the world that Israel was so foolish? Like you ever think about it? Like, like think about it. God's promises, his provision, his protection. Like it's just amazing. You watch it. That's what your Old Testament's about. Old Testament's not complicated. We make it complicated because there's a lot of names that we don't know, a lot of locations. But the bottom line is this. Israel is God's people. He brings them out and they ride the Texas giant. It's up and down. It's loops and turns. At the end of it, their chest is hurting because they're like, what did I just go on? Like, was that exhilarating and fun? Yeah, it was. Do I want to go again? I'm not sure. And they just take this ride and they're trusting God. They're not trusting God. They're obeying God and they're not obeying God. And that's what it's about. And all the time, here's what your Old Testament is about. It's about a nation called Israel. And all he wants Israel to know is this, is that one day you'll no longer have to have loopy loops and twists and turns because one day I'll make your path straight. That if you'll not trust in your own way, if you're not leaning to your own understanding, he goes, I would love to make your path straight. That's what he wanted for Israel. And fast forward, guess what? That's what he wants for you. What's amazing is, is that God gave us promises, provisions, and protection. Let's talk about God's promise to you real quick. 
Here's what God's promised to you. Paul writes at the church of Rome in Romans chapter six. He goes, you don't have to be yoked to sin anymore. Look what he says in verse 16 and 17. Hey, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? He goes, you can even be enslaved to Pharaoh or your hardness of heart, or you could be enslaved to something righteous, your choice. Look what he says in verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Wow! Now here's what God's saying. He goes, you used to be yoked to your own selfishness, foolishness, and arrogance. You were disobedient, you were lovers of self, you were passionate about your own agenda and God called you out of sin, out of confusion, out of darkness. He set you free and he said, now you were yoked to your own path? No. To your own way of, of thinking? No. To your right ideas? No. Because your right ideas, your way of thinking reminds us more of Pharaoh than it does of the God of the Bible. And so he says, so yoke yourself to me. But what does he call you? He calls you a slave of what? Righteousness. Listen, friends, don't be confused. You need to realize that you were a slave to something. The question is, is what are you a slave to? Really, what are you a slave to? The very thing that you don't want to give over to God is the very thing you should. It's the very thing that's enslaving you. It's the very thing that keeps you spinning a gerbil wheel over and over and over again, doing this thing called life. Can't dig out of the ruts, can't get unstuck. Time and time again, you look more like Israel and Egypt than Israel in the promised land. And God says, all you gotta do is become a slave of righteousness. A great Puritan named Thomas Watson said this. He says, great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. He says, it costs, us, uh, it costs more to redeem us than to make us. In the one meaning of creation, uh, there was a speaking of a word. In the other, there was the shedding of blood. The creation was the work of God's finger, but redemption is the work of his, what? Arm. It is by God's arm he brought you out. Why do you remind yourself of his precepts? Because it was his arm that he brought you out. Hey, why do you consecrate your firstborn? Because it was his arm he brought you out. Hey, why do you write it on the tablet of your heart and the front of your eyes? Because it was your arm. It was by his arm. The arm in which he took and put a rod in his hand and he placed it on the back of his son. Stricken, punished, rejected, shamefully, shamefully scorned, his beard plucked, beaten until you couldn't recognize him. He was in shame and in guilt. He was punished though innocent and he bore the brunt of the strong arm of God. Punished like a plague of the firstborn son so that people could go free. And we'll talk about the Passover in two weeks as we kick off a series called the Passover Lamb. Just priming you up, friends, priming you up. 
Do you see what God did? He, he gave a promise, but what is the provision? The provision goes further than that. Peter says this. He goes, the provision is that you're not alone. You're being built up. Look what it says. As you come to him, you were a living stone, um, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Speaking of Jesus. But he goes, and then look at you. You yourselves are like living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes, listen, you are, are the provision. He goes, you, you are the very provision that you need. Why? Because you are not left alone. He goes, I have given you a deposit of what's called the Holy Spirit, the helper. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 14, John chapter 17. He goes, listen, I'm going away, but a more suitable helper will come to you, namely the Holy Spirit. And where does the Spirit dwell? Well, in the Old Testament, it dwelt in the temple or the tabernacle. Do you know what God's doing today? He's tabernacling in you. He is tabernacled among us. We are the temple, Acts 17. Not built by bricks and stone, which is why this building doesn't matter. We shut down this building, we move outdoors. It's raining outdoors, we move to your home. It doesn't matter where we gather. The reality is, is that God is in us. We are being built up to a spiritual house. We are the inhabitants of the Holy Spirit. But if we're a spiritual house, it goes on. And Peter says this, look at verse nine. He goes, and you are a cho chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You're not just a spiritual house and have access to God because he lives in you, but he goes, you're also a priesthood. I mean, we are a priesthood of believers, which is an incredible thing. And when we think about being a priesthood, what that means is that you have a job to do. The Old Testament priest had a job to do. You have a job to do. What does that mean? Well, it means that there are priestly functions. You know what the primary priestly function is? The primary priestly function, Paul writes to the church of Corinth, and that is that as ambassador of Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 5.20, that God is making his appeal to others through us. That means that the nations will come to know the God of the Bible through his ambassadors, which means, friends, if you're too worried about yourself to tell others about the king who owns your heart, then guess what? You're ultimately the most selfish person on the planet. And isn't it crazy what we'll devote our time to? But one of the things we struggle to do as a priest is to make an appeal to others When's the last time that you made an appeal to the person who cut your hair for them to come to know and follow Jesus Christ? When's the last time that you were having lunch or dinner out to eat and your server who's serving you, you took a chance to know her name, to know his name, to pray for them and to tell them just real briefly about why your faith matters. It is God who is making his appeal through the priesthood to the world. Are you doing your priestly duty? Are you a very good priest? Do you know what priests did, right? They made sacrifices. Do you know what the ultimate sacrifice is that God requires of you and me? Our first fruit, right? Just a little portion of our life. No, he, all of us. Look at what it says. Paul, Paul writes to the church of Rome. Paul understood this. Look at what he says in Romans 12.1, a fantastic verse that many of you probably have memorized. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. God wants all of us. He gave his first fruit 
and he requires what? Hours. So when you think about your first fruits, well, what does that mean? Well, look what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.10. He goes, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are the first fruit. You are what God, you are what God came to set free. Isn't that an amazing thing? Matter of fact, look how James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes it. In James chapter 1, verse 16 and 18, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good, gift, uh, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. All good things are from God. Amen? Amen? Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we should be the kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Do y'all see what happened here? God sent his son to redeem a first fruit. Y'all remember the first fruit back in Exodus? A human sacrifice is not gonna be acceptable to God. And so you know what it is? When they're redeemed. How did God redeem a first fruit like us? He sent his one and only son. A transfer takes place. You leave sin and you head towards righteousness. Which then begs the question, if God's given his promise and he's given his provision, then do you have his protection? Because if you have been sealed for the day of redemption, Ephesians 1, that means that you can hold on to the promise of John chapter 14 of God preparing a place for you, receiving unto himself. But even more than that, you can also know that though this mortal body will fail and fade away, that there is something that even when the earth is burned up with fire, that is imperishable. And that is our hope and our refuge and our relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who was our first fruit so that we could become God's first fruits. And all he's saying is, is you need to know that there is a promise that will not spoil, will not fade away, and that is being kept in heaven for you because you and I are citizens of the most high God and we are children of the King. Amen. What an incredible, incredible hope. And here's why it's incredible. You ready? Boy, oh boy. How often does Israel look foolish? Oh, gosh, why didn't y'all get it? God parts the Red Sea in a couple of chapters. I mean, y'all walk through in dry land. He, he overcomes your adversaries, and then y'all just continue to ride the roller coaster of life. But here's what I want you to hear. Lean in with me. They had but mere shadows of the thing to come. Every ceremonial ritual, everything they would eat, every way that they would dress, every act that their priest would partake in, every sacrifice they would do, every single one of them were in some ways cheap substitutes of the real deal. All pointing forward for a more excellent day where no longer do you have variations, no longer do you have sh shifting shadows that you can't get your arms around, but one day you'll have the fulfillment of the king. He'll be there in person. He'll be the Messiah. He'll be slaughtered on your behalf so that you might be free. Guys, we don't have shifting shadows. We have Jesus Christ, not the one who was created, but the one who has always been and that created us for his purpose. Which then begs the question, 
if we are his first fruits, what does he want from us? What does he require of us? And I think this is where we miss it. And I need you to lean in really, really hard here because this is where we miss it. We think, and I think we sometimes are subject to, to not believe the best of our leaders because our, believers, our, our, our leaders are pointing us towards things like that. But I think what happens oftentimes is that we dumb down our participation in the body of Christ in grace. That because Christ did save us, that we are free to do what we want. Which is the problem with the couch potato Christian. Listen, Israel, when they came out, were not free to go the way that they wanted. And you and I are not free to go the way we want. And here's why. If you are free to do what you want, you are God. And the problem is, is, quite frankly, I see too many people in Christianity now that they are their own gods serving some cheap substitute of the Jesus they want. Not the Jesus that we see in the Bible. Jesus in the Bible said, to follow me is gonna cost you something. It's amazing how many people now, and perhaps maybe even as we have this conversation here in Will's Point, Edgewood Online, how many people we want freedom but we want it our way. Listen, last time I checked, this church ain't right here. Like this Bible, the, the early church, what we're remembering wasn't Burger King. It's not about having your way. It's about surrendering our lives to his way. So then begs the question, what does God want of you? What does he require of you? One hour of the week? And all the hours that he gives us, he wants one hour? Is that what he wants? No, he wants every hour. He, he wants your life to be the same in your workplace as it is here in your worship place. Why? Because this isn't your worship place. Do you know where your worship place is? It's out there. It's wherever we go. Why? Because God's spirit's with us. We worship all the time in all things. So it means we worship God in our parenting. He wants your parenting. He wants your marriage. No matter how ugly it looks right now behind closed doors, he wants your marriage, all of it. Not some of it, not portions of it. He wants all of it. He wants all of you. He don't want just an hour of your time. He wants a whole week. But he does say, hey, listen, I give you a Sabbath, which I think personally was more for Israel than it is for us. I don't hold to a Sunday Sabbath the way that many of you do. I hold to a Hebrews 14 Sabbath that every day I have complete rest in Jesus Christ. He is my Sabbath rest. He intends to be our Sabbath rest. We can cast all of our, our sorrows upon him when we're weak, when we have laden. Matthew 11 tells us, 28 through 30, that we can cast it all, throw it all at him. He's our Sabbath rest, which means that he doesn't want just a little portion of your time. He wants all your life. Let's talk about your finances. Do you really believe that all God wants is 10% of your finances? No, he wants all your finances. He wants you to steward them all. And if you're steward all your finances, then you're not asking the question, well, hey, what do I give? That would be like Jew coming uh, in prep uh, of the, the Feast of Weeks and, and they're going to Pentecost. They're gonna give a bunch of, of wheat. And it would almost be like them going, uh, I mean, here's half the crop of wheat didn't make. Um, do I give off of half the crop that didn't make or do just off the half of the crop that did make? Y'all see the silly questions that probably Jews would ask, right? Which is why God gave very clear instructions. Because we go, oh God, what do I, I mean, what do I wanna give? Like, listen, God wants all of you. He wants all your finances. And the very thing that you're wrestling with, the very thing that God wants. It's just true. 
Does he want you to serve for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour? It's like, is that really what you believe? Like, he just wants a little portion of me. No, I think he wants all of you. Which then begs the question, if you are his priest and he's given you great promises and protection, then what are you doing in your priestly service? And what do you believe you're required to do? So as leaders here, where I think oftentimes we're misunderstood, we would say, hey, we think this is what, this is what we think a priest looks like. It doesn't look like the, the Catholic church that a lot of us grew up with. It's not that kind of priest because we're all priests. What it looks like is a servant of God who is a bond servant, the most high God, who says, here's my life, Lord, send me. And some of you right now, the Lord's calling to send you into a place that you don't want to go. And it's called kids ministry. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Here's what I am telling you, is that I think a lot of God calling some of us in this room to give your life to Jesus Christ today. He's saying today's the day, like today's the day that I go all in for Jesus. That I set my sight and, and I become no longer a product of my sin and a slave to what I want, but it's time for me to trust the God of the Bible. And today's your day. And I wanna talk to you, I wanna visit with you. And we have te a team of people who wanna visit with you. There are others of you that you would say, I've trusted Christ. He, I, I, he's already died for me, man. I made a commitment to him. Then he's going, okay, well then give me a little something back. And for some of you, he's going, hey, you need to give me your finances. And then he's to start with the sacrificial giving. For some of you, he goes, you need to serve and you need to serve more than you think that you should serve because it's, it's not, it's not, you're not feeling it yet. There's some of you that you, you need to go beyond that. You need to begin sharing the gospel with your neighbors and with the person who cuts your hair and with waiters and waitresses, but you need to appeal to others. There are yet others of you that you need to go right now. And the first step you have is to go and reconcile your odds with someone in our church family. And you need to make it right because you have nothing to offer in service to God because right now you're completely in the wrong because you will not forgive as you've been forgiven. You want grace received, but you don't give grace. And it's time. There's plenty of next steps, right? The reality is, is this. I don't see how you could read this text and not move. I don't see how you hear what God has done and not participate. And this message is about participating. It's not simply remembering what God's done because Israel remembered it. The question is, what do you do with what you've remembered? And Israel always struggled with that. And quite frankly, I'm afraid a lot of us do too. But if Christ died for you, then render your life in service to him. And friends, here's what I would appeal to you. Listen, I wanna appeal. If it's not here, that's okay. But go find somewhere that's gonna preach the word of God and get plugged in. Get off the bench, get in the game and make yourself known. You're not known because you don't make yourself known. I want friends, hop in, come. Come, be a part, get plugged in. You will be known to the point that you'll make yourself available. But if you want it all to come to you, friends, listen, it does not happen that way. It amazes me because some people have been here a decade and they're not known as much as the person who's been here two months. Render your life in service.
there's a place for you. What a privilege it was to preach this message. I pray it lands on fertile soil. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would remind us of your goodness. I pray that you would bring up a crop of righteousness in our lives. And I pray that we would yield it in service to you. That if you want all the crop, we give it to you. If you want half the crop, we give it to you. If you're calling us a little less, hey, we don't worry about that. We just wanna say, here I am, Lord, send me. And so Lord, I know that there's many of our friends today that have a next step. And there's many of us who wanna help them walk in that next step. And so Lord, would you help us? We love you. We thank you. We sing to you. We honor you because of you and your righteousness and your faithfulness and because of your promises, your provision and your protection in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.